As we come now before God's word, would you turn in your Bibles to Philippians in chapter 3? That's in the New Testament, Philippians chapter 3. And as you find that, would you please pray with me? Lord Jesus, the psalmist wrote, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word do I hope. That's true for us. We're waiting on you now to speak to us. Would you help us to be eager to hear your word, to long to know you better? Would you guide us by your spirit? Help us now to hear and to believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is Philippians in chapter 3. I'll read here the first 11 verses. Philippians 3, starting in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is of no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have had reason for confidence in the flesh also, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings and become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is God's word. Now, as we've spent several weeks now and a few months reading through the book of Philippians, Paul comes in this section with the opening word, finally. And with that, we might think that that he's winding down, but like any good preacher, he talks for two more chapters. It gives him his second win. Finally, guys, oh yeah, I have more to tell you. And he says, finally, brothers, listen, I want you to hear this. I need you to hear this. Oh, I need to talk more about this. I want you to rejoice in the Lord. 
I would imagine many of you have noticed by now as we've gone through Philippians that joy is a pretty major theme in this letter to the Philippians. Paul talks about it quite a lot. He keeps returning to this idea. And here in this section, he talks about what follows, what the section that follows is our source of joy. The heart of this source of joy, he, he talks about as being gaining of Christ. If that sounds familiar, it's because he talked about it already in chapter 1. Several weeks ago, we talked extensively about that. Remember, he said, to live is Christ, and to die is just to gain more of Christ. And if I had nothing but Christ, that would be enough for me, because Jesus is of surpassing worth. Jesus is of greater value to us than all the wealth we could ever imagine. Jesus is of greater value to us than all the friends we could ever want. Jesus is of greater value to us than all the respect and admiration that we could ever long for. And Jesus is more valuable to us than any other source of joy. Paul here says that to gain Christ is really to, to know Christ. And I know you know this already, but just as a reminder, to know Jesus, of course, is not just in our brains. It's not just to know facts about Jesus, but to know him. That we really know him in our deepest self. In fact, this is uh, so important that we know Christ that Paul gives us a warning here. He says, Philippians, I want you to pay attention. In order to protect this, this gaining of Christ, this knowing of Christ that is the source of rejoicing in the Lord, I need you to look out. Did you notice it? He says it a lot in, in uh, verse 2. Now, some... Uh, that he says to say this, to look out, because in a sense, this joy in Jesus is being threatened. So watch out, he says. Some translate this uh, with just a single word, look out, look out for the dogs, evildoers, and those who mutilate the flesh. But that misses that Paul emphasizes this three times over. He says the word three times. Look out, look out, look out. We don't know all the details here about what exactly was going on here that Paul wanted the Philippians to watch out for. We don't know exactly whether this situation was actively happening in the city of Philippi or whether there was a broader cultural issue that just might affect them that he wants them to be prepared for. But whatever it was, Paul's now sending them a strong warning the first two are more generic. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. But the third one's a little more specific and helpful for us in knowing what he means. He says, look out for, mine translates it, translates well, I think. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Here he's getting after a particular approach that was happening to the idea of circumcision. 
and not just general circumcision. Here he's being purposefully graphic. So it's a good translation to say those who mutilate the flesh. That some are approaching circumcision in such a way that it leaves them literally cut up or butchered or mutilated. This is supposed to hit us really hard that they would be butchered in circumcision in the most sensitive place. I see especially some of the men wince a little bit at that thought. It's supposed to be disturbing for us. And of course, he doesn't just mean that they are literally butchered in their circumcision, but that spiritually something in their circumcision is butchering them. And spiritually, that is far worse. So I know a discussion about circumcision sounds odd in our context. Maybe it's a little uncomfortable. It's a little messy and graphic. Uh, But it's important to understand what's happening here so that we can figure out what Paul's saying. You know, circumcision was part of God's covenant or his promises to his people. And the origins of it in relation to God's people happened 2,000 years before Paul even wrote, 4,000 years before us back in Genesis. You can turn there if you wish. I'll just read a few verses here. This comes from uh, Genesis in chapter 17, starting in verse... I'll start in verse 9. And God said to Abraham, As for you, Abraham, you shall keep my covenant you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So what's happening here is that God had made promises already to Abraham. I will be your God and you will be my people. And this is to be true of all of God's chosen people. So not just the males, it's true of the men and the women. But specifically for the males, there was to be this sign of the promise. Circumcision was a sign. So you remember when Noah was rescued in the ark and he comes out and the Lord makes a promise, a covenant with Noah. And to seal that as a sign, he puts a bow in the sky, a rainbow. That's a sign of his covenant promise. It's a much tidier and prettier sign of the covenant promise than circumcision is, but similar sort of thing. So all these uh, laws, these types of laws in the Old Testament, which we call ceremonial laws, things like the Passover practices and the Sabbath and burnt sacrifices and circumcision. These are all pointers. They function like signs. So the sign then does not make the promise effective, but it's a pointer to the promise. Our confession of faith is uh, I think is helpful for this. The wording is kind of sounds strange, but there's a difference between the sign and the thing it signifies. So for the 4th of July, if you put a flag out in your house or somewhere in your house, that flag is a sign. 
If you hang it out, it doesn't make you American, but it's a pointer to the fact that you probably are American. It's a pointer to the thing it signifies. So all of these things, circumcision included, are pointers, they're road signs that are saying to us, go this way. It's a way that God reminds us and leads us to see his promises. The difficulty is that even though God designed circumcision this way, that as time passed, some fell into the idea that the sign itself, not just the thing it signifies, but the sign itself is sufficient. So if you want to go see the the Grand Canyon, from here you've got quite the drive. But imagine that you get all the way up close. You even get into the National Park and you see the road sign that says, Grand Canyon, one mile ahead. That sign is very valuable only as a pointer to the thing it signifies. But some just get to the sign and stand under it and are content and are satisfied to stand there. They think they have the thing it signifies and don't even know that they're missing it. They are so close and yet so far. That seems to be what's happening here in Philippians. This circumcision is a sign. It's a pointer. It's the, it's the Grand Canyon sign. And circumcision as a practice for the Jews was still happening, even right up to the beginning of the New Testament. Paul says he was circumcised. We know John the Baptist was also, also circumcised. Uh, but John the Baptist, when he went out and spoke, he said, the thing that all of this has been pointing to is almost here. When, he, when God said, I will be your God, that's now coming to fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus is the one thing, the, the signified thing that all these Old Testament ceremonial laws were funneling toward. And John says, you're on the edge of the Grand Canyon. I want you to open your eyes and see it. Christ then does even more than mark the body in circumcision. He marks the heart. Paul references it several times in his letters in Galatians chapter 6. He says it's not circumcision or uncircumcision that counts, but what counts, what matters, is a new creation, a transformation by Jesus from the inside out. And he says in Romans chapter 2 that a true Jew is not one who is outwardly or physically circumcised, but one who is inwardly circumcised in the heart. That's really what the Old Testament was getting at all along. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, let me get here. This is now as the the God's chosen people are on the edge of the promised land. And he says this to them, Deuteronomy in chapter 30, starting at verse 1. The Lord says, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you. And you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and you return to the Lord your God 
you and your children, and you obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost part of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you, and the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you even more prosperous and more numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Here's what's happening here. In other words, he says, you, Israel, my people, once you're in the promised land, will turn away from me. And you will pay the curse for that, a price for that sin. You will be scattered. But when you repent, he says, I will restore you even more than before. I will circumcise you not in your body, but in your heart so that you love me. So that when you obey me, it's actually because you desire to obey me, that you come to want what I want, and that in doing all of this, that you will really live. We know a physical circumcision is to be an outward sign of an inward reality. Now for the Philippians, some were just circumcising the flesh as if it did something on their own. And the effect of that is that they just end up uh, spiritually mutilated, butchered. They're left standing in the heat underneath the sign of the Grand Canyon, so close and yet so far. Paul says, watch out for that because, look, I did that. We talked about this before, so we won't go too much into this, but Paul said, I had all those experiences. I, I was circumcised. I was a Pharisee. I was lawfully righteousness. I did all the super religious stuff. I pushed my chips all in for this. I thought I was someone and was somewhere. I was taking photos of myself at the Grand Canyon sign and posting them on Facebook. I was so close and had no idea that I was completely missing it, that the Grand Canyon was just behind my back. Paul says, but now, now that I see Jesus, now that I know Jesus, I consider all those things that I thought were so great and important, all of that is as rubbish. I, I, I might as well have thrown it to the dogs or flushed it down the toilet. It's not that obedience, of course, doesn't matter, but even our obedience, in a sense, is a pointer, too. It's just a sign that is leading us to Jesus. We will get nowhere camping under these signs because there is no confidence there. Paul says, I get it now. 
I finally realizing that I was putting all my confidence in really weak things. That I was building a house with beams of straw. And the house started to quiver under the weight on the verge of collapse. Paul says, I don't want that for you, Christian. I don't want that for you, beloved. I don't want that for you, beloved. So look out. Watch for these things. He's not trying to make us paranoid here. He just wants us to open our eyes and see that there are some things and some people which are building houses which will not stand. He says, we're the true circumcision. We are ones who God has worked in the heart, who worship by the Spirit of God. And so as a result of that, we don't put confidence in the flesh. So now the big question for us now is, if we don't have confidence there in all this list of things of the flesh, then where do we put our trust? Spoiler alert, good Sunday school answer, it's probably going to be Jesus. But this is the big question in it, isn't it? The, one of life's biggest questions, where do we put our trust? And this is a question that we will really have to wrestle with before we face the trials. It's a question that we will have to wrestle with before the dogs are at our feet. It's a a question we have to wrestle with before those who mutilate the flesh are muddying our minds with half-truths. And it's an important question. A question that's as old as history itself. We know that they faced it in the Old Testament. Where do we put our trust? Uh, King Hezekiah, last place I'll go. King Hezekiah uh, was one of the kings of Judah and Jerusalem about 700 BC. Where am I going? Second Kings in chapter 18. So Israel as a whole had been ransacked by Assyria, and what's left is just the single tribe of Judah uh, holding the fort down, so to speak. And so Assyria didn't just leave them alone. They came in to attack the people of Israel and Judah as well. So King Hezekiah is in charge. They're at Jerusalem, and the army of Assyria has surrounded them all the way around the wall of Jerusalem. And the plan is, they've got a big enough army, we can just wait. We don't let anyone in or out. And eventually, they'll starve. That's how you win an easy battle without too many casualties. You don't have to fight. You just surround them until they give up or die. And that's exactly what happens here. Uh, this guy, uh, the, the Rab Shakeh, which I think is a neat title. It's a title of one of the uh, Syrian military leaders. He, he goes up, he's sort of the leader there, and he shouts at the wall, of Jerusalem, trying to get the people of God to surrender. So this happens then in 2 Kings chapter 18, starting in verse 19. The Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, 
on what do you rest this trust of yours? There's our question, isn't it? Same question for them that we have. On what do you rest your confidence? And then he gives a list. Verse 20. Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you've rebelled against me? He said, is your trust mere words? That if you just say it to yourself enough that something will eventually become true? That if you get all your theology and doctrine straight, that you'll be okay? That if you never curse or cuss or gossip with your words, that you'll be all right? Is that your confidence? And he goes on, verse 21, Behold, you're now trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. Do you trust in Egypt? If you get good alliances with sources of power, maybe you'll be okay. Maybe if you have access to money or influence. If you get into the good schools or get access to the good doctors. If we get the right political candidates elected or the right person on the Supreme Court. Is that your confidence? And he goes on. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is, not he whose, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Here he says, well, you say you trust in God, but he has misunderstood God. The Rabshakeh has distorted God, so he says, if you... Look to a Lord who's powerless over sin and evil. If you look to a God who just wants you to do your best and then watches and hopes that things will turn out all right. If you worship a Lord who will never put you through difficult things, even death itself. If you worship a Lord of your own making who is made in your own image, is that your confidence? All of this, of course, is rubbish. And King Hezekiah knows it. As he's hearing this guy list out, he knows there's no confidence in these things. So when he hears the guy call out, what is your source of trust? Where does he go? Not to mere words, not to alliances, not to a self-made God. The beginning of chapter, one, or chapter 19 says this, as soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. The question has been, where do you put your trust? And the king's first response is to go into God's house. Hmm. 
He knows that his trust is in the Lord, the God of Israel, who long ago made covenant promises to his people. A God who gave them signs so that they would not forget God's covenant promises. And what Paul says to the Philippians is similar. He says, when push comes to shove, when when you come to the end of yourself, when you suffer the loss of all things, where can you put your confidence? Verse 9, he says, that I would be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. Paul says, it's his righteousness, not mine, on which I rest my trust. It's his faithfulness, not mine, on which I rest my trust. It's his power, not mine, on which I rest my trust. It's his death and resurrection, not even mine, on which I rest my trust. We want to know Jesus like this. And we need our faith to be increased to know him like this. You know the best way to know the Grand Canyon? It's not from pamphlets, even the pretty ones. It's not from Wikipedia. And it's not from sitting under the road sign. You know this. The best way to know the Grand Canyon is to Stand and watch the sun set over its ridge. Watch the shadows creep over the rocks. The best way to know the Grand Canyon is to sit on its edge and just feel the breeze sweep over and feel it on your face. The best way to know the Grand Canyon is not even to speak, but just to sit and look and feel Feel, drink in its surpassing beauty. It's the same way with Jesus. As we draw near to him in faith, we want to really see the glory and wisdom in his life. To see the agony of his sufferings and his sacrifice. And to see the power in his resurrection from death. To really sit with our feet dangling over the edge of the grand canyon of his love. That's how we know him. That we come to consider him of being of surpassing worth that just takes our breath away. So Paul says to us here, Christian, Beware of missing it. I don't want you to be so close and yet so far. So look out, I beg you, for anyone or anything that would stand in the way of Jesus. Instead, we want to follow God as he uses these pointers to take us to the foot of the cross. We'll actually do that in just a few minutes with this here in front of me. 
the Lord's Supper is another one of these pointers. It's more than just a sign, of course, but it's also a sign. It's a pointer not to ourselves. So as you sit and reflect, as these things come to you, don't mainly look inward. The pointer is to Jesus. He says, do this in remembrance of me. This is my body. This is my blood. This is a display of my Grand Canyon love for you. So as you take of this bread and cup by faith, beware of just standing at the base of the sign, but let the Lord lead you to its destination, which is Jesus Christ himself. Would you pray with me? Lord, would you help us to see you here. Not bodily, of course, but we know you are really spiritually with us. Help us to see your power, your resurrection, your righteousness. Help us to taste you and see in a way that's not far, but close to you. Would you set aside these things now as holy And as we take of them, would you nourish us and increase our faith? Our confidence is in you, and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.